Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. That I challenged us with at the end of last week's message. In case you missed that, last Sunday, I challenged all of us to be on the lookout for opportunities to serve other people in secret, to look for ways to try to do something kind for somebody else that they might not give us the credit for it. They might not even recognize who had served them. And so we were looking for ways all week to try to live that out, to try to be silent, secret servants. And we were also looking for ways to dole out glory and recognition to other people rather than seeking recognition for ourselves. But we weren't just doing these good deeds for kindness sake last week. There was more of an intention behind it. We were practicing together some of the habits that can help us push back against the temptation to chase glory for ourselves. You see, each and every one of us knows that addictive feeling, that narcotic feeling of having someone recognize us for our talents, for our abilities, for our contributions, for our skills, We know what it feels like to be honored, thanked, appreciated, recognized, promoted. We know what that's like, and we like it. And so sometimes that can be so addicting that that can become a driving force in our lives, and we can chase glory for ourselves. But last week we were kicking off a new series of messages, Glittering Vices, that has us talking about some of these pitfalls that can be perennial struggles for people who are trying to live as disciples of Jesus. There are some common struggles, some common habits, some common issues that can come up for people of all types of backgrounds and experiences and life stages and points of view. Different people can have the same kinds of struggles as they try to pursue Christ's likeness. In fact, for over a thousand years now, Christians have recognized a list of seven specific obstacles that seem to come up time and time again. Seven specific obstacles that come up in most people's spiritual journey. You may have heard this list referred to as the seven deadly sins, but a more accurate name is the seven capital vices. We use the word capital because these habits can be a source of sinful behavior. They can be like the headwaters of a stream of sinful self-destructive behavior in a Christian's life. And we use the word vice instead of sin because we're not talking about individual actions, we're talking about habits, we're talking about propensities, we're talking about appetites that well up and start to gain momentum and fester inside of us. Each of the items on this list that we're studying together in this series is a tendency or a pattern that can develop in a person's heart. And when that begins to develop, when it begins to grow, when it begins to metastasize in somebody's heart, it can steer them away from the spiritual growth that God desires. 
And so last week, the first vice on the list was vain glory, this churchy word that really just means an excessive desire for recognition, an excessive desire to be approved of by others. And that impulse to be respected and applauded and well-liked, it can lead us down that dangerous path of self-promotion, which is why last week we prescribed these preventative measures, acts of doing kindness without recognition, looking for ways to give honor away rather than hoarding honor for ourselves. These are the kinds of preventative disciplines that can keep vainglory at bay. And my hope is that throughout this series, my plan is to give you some tangible practices, some real behaviors that you could begin to implement in your life to help you combat each of the spiritual capital vices that we're going to talk about. But I have to warn you going into today's message, the vice we're talking about today, it may be the hardest habit to break. I see it in myself all the time. In fact, as I was preparing the message this week, I developed a case of writer's block, which is not terribly unusual for me. I'm sitting there staring at the blinking cursor in the word processing program on my computer, thinking about all of you, thinking about the things I've studied, wondering what it is that I'm going to say to you this week and feeling like the words aren't coming very quickly. And I was sitting there this week struggling through that. I was wrestling. I was feeling frustrated. And my mind started wandering, thinking about how so many of my preacher friends make it look easy. I was thinking about my preacher friend down in Austin who's very humble to tell me about how he's always working four weeks ahead in his sermon writing process. He's got this system worked out where he's able to plan ahead and work on the message. He's going to be preaching a month from now. He's so disciplined. And when you talk to him about his sermon writing, he just sounds carefree. And I wish I could be like that. I thought about my other preaching buddy right here in Tarrant County who's just, he's just so naturally funny, funny that every sermon he preaches seems to have the audience in stitches, much like you are right now. I mean, he's building this rapport with people and they love listening to him and then the second that he hits them with like the, the deep spiritual truth, boy, he's got them because they've got this connection that he's been developing and, and, and that kind of humor doesn't come naturally to me and I thought about how fun that would be, about how I wish I could be like that. A couple of weeks ago, my friend David Ayers was our guest speaker here at Heritage, and he told the story to this audience about what it was like when he met me. And we were in a mentoring group together with a bunch of other ministers, 13 of us in fact, 13 ministers that were kind of being mentored by some ministers in another generation ahead of us. And one of the things they asked us to do was this personality assessment that David mentioned. And it was supposed to tell us about what our natural tendencies and gifts and skills and talents are and how we function in certain situations in our ministry roles. And so the facilitator used some masking tape and created this giant square on the floor in the room where we were. It was supposed to represent a grid with all of the different types that could be the results in this assessment. And we were all supposed to go and stand in the square on the place in the grid that revealed our results. And the funny part of the story, which David told, 
is that there were 13 preachers in this group and 12 of them were like standing on top of each other in this one corner. And then there was Brock. Twelve of them over here, I mean, like they're, they're trying not to fall out of the square, you know, like they are all standing in the same spot in this square, on this grid, and I'm on the complete opposite side of the grid, on the complete opposite extreme. And the part that David didn't mention to you was that the quadrant where all of those other preachers were standing was labeled communicators, which sounds like a pretty good quality for a preacher to have, Right? I wasn't standing there. And there I was standing by myself on the opposite side of the square wondering, why can't I be a little bit more like the rest of them? Why can't I have some more of the skills and some of the talents and some of the gifts and some of the humor and some of the ability that some of them have that I admire so much? Now, I want you to know this is an illustration today. I don't need you to worry about me. I'm okay. I know there's a few of you who appreciate my preaching, and my mother's watching online, and she she and I are good. I'm her favorite one. But I'm telling you these stories to illustrate how easy it is to become envious of the abilities of others. Envy is the capital vice that we're looking at today. And envy is all about falling into a comparison trap and wishing that we could have what somebody else has been blessed with. And not just an equal measure, more of it. We'd like to take some of theirs. We'd like to have some of their ability, some of their resources, some of their experience, some of their skill. In fact, one way of explaining what envy means is that envy is the experience of feeling bitter when somebody else has it better. Envy is feeling bitter when others have it better. And you've seen this before, haven't you? We recognize this in other people. Remember the story Maybe you watched it, the old cartoon animated movie as a kid, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And you remember that evil queen, the stepmother, who would stand in front of her magic mirror every day and she would ask that question every day. You remember the question, don't you? Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And every day the answer was the same. Every day, you, O oh queen, you're the fairest of them all. Until one day something changed. One day something changed. Little girl Snow White grew up and and then one day, one day the mirror said, actually there's one person who's fairer than you. There's one person whose hair is darker, whose lips are redder, whose skin is purer. And that was the trigger. That was the trigger that sent the queen over the edge and for the rest of the story she was on a quest to have Snow White eliminated. It wasn't enough for her to be fair. It wasn't enough for her to be beautiful. It wasn't enough for her to be second best. She had to get rid of the one who was first. Who's the fairest of them all? If it's anybody but me, we're going to do something about that. That was her attitude. And the irony of it, the irony of that story is that her envy made the queen despicable because envy doesn't look good on anybody, right? Envy's not something that any of us enjoy. It's not attractive. In fact, out of all the capital vices, envy is the one on this list, the one capital vice that doesn't even provide any kind of momentary pleasures, as misguided as those might be in other cases. 
Envy is the one that doesn't even feel good. One writer has said, out of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. Like there's, it's not even something you would choose for yourself. Nobody chooses envy. But at the same time, nobody is immune to feeling envious either. Nobody just skirts by right on past this. Envy is a bit like a bacteria or like a cancer that can begin to get into our system and under the right conditions it continues to grow and wreak havoc in our hearts and havoc in our relationships. In fact, we can get so infected with envy that it just starts to seem normal. It just starts to feel like that's what life is. That's how life feels. It makes it feel like a race against everybody else. Doesn't everybody else feel this way? We might wonder. Some of us live our entire lives in a constant state of mild envy. And it doesn't help. It doesn't help to be constantly bombarded with the highlight reels of other people's lives the way that we are today with social media and all of that. You ever find yourself feeling that way? I found one writer who wrote an article. She said, if we're Facebook friends, I probably hate you. Not all the time, but intermittently and with the burning hatred that only envy can inspire. You ever felt that? You ever find yourself frustrated by how much easier or more leisurely or more successful someone else's life seems to be? Maybe it's because, I mean, you, you come up with ideas in your mind. Maybe it's because they make more money than I do. They seem smarter. They're definitely more attractive. They're probably healthier. They're more disciplined. Maybe their spouse is better than mine. Maybe it's because they have a spouse and I don't. You come up with all these things. Maybe, maybe their kids are just better behaved kids. And you start imagining how their life must be so much more enjoyable than your life. In fact, we could make a long list of examples. We could keep going on about all of the examples for why we become envious of other people. We could try to name a lot of other reasons, but we couldn't name them all because envy can crop, over, uh, crop up over just about anything. It just comes too easy. I've even noticed that churches can get envious too. In a community like ours, where there seems to be a church on every corner, it can be really easy, really easy, for church members to fall into a comparison trap and think, boy, it seems like that church does X, Y, Z better than we do. That church has a lot better stuff than we do. That church has a lot more engaging whatever than we do. It can be easy for members to fall into that trap, and I promise you it can be easy for pastors to fall into that trap as well. And that's the thing about envy. The thing about envy is that it always involves comparison to somebody else and disappointment about our own situation. It always involves looking at somebody else's situation and thinking, boy, things would sure be better if my life could be like that life. And since there are infinite ways to measure ourselves, infinite scales, infinite measures that we can use to determine if we're getting everything we can out of this life. There's infinite ways to measure, and so there's infinite possible reasons to feel envy. But the real threat underneath all of this, envy's real threat, 
is that it tempts us to measure our own self-worth by how we compare to somebody else. I appreciated my brother Jaime reading Jesus' parable a few minutes ago for us from Matthew chapter 20, the parable of the workers in the field. And when we read this story, we get to see the totally relatable, ugly side of envy in the hearts of the vineyard workers who were hired first, right? Did you catch what was going on in the story? This vineyard owner hires laborers, day laborers, first thing in the morning. We're talking about like 6 a.m. It's sunrise. He goes into the marketplace and finds some people to come work in his fields for the day. But then he goes out again three hours later at 9 a.m. and again at 12 and again at 3. And then finally he goes out again at 5 o'clock. That's quitting time in my world, right? He goes out again at 5 o'clock. And he finds more workers at every one of those stops, 9, 12, 3, 5. He keeps bringing back more people to come and work in the field and join with that early crew, the sunrise crew. And at the end of the day, the owner of the vineyard pays all of the workers, all the workers, the equivalent of one day's wages. I mean, he keeps his word to the first bunch. He pays them exactly what they agreed to work for. But it's the fact that the late arrivals get the same pay that really irks the Sunrise crew, right? It's the five o'clock start folks, the people who were like just getting their tools out when it was time to start packing up, you know? It was, those, it was the fact that those people got paid a full day's pay that really bothers the one who had been out there for 12 hours. And I understand their frustration, don't you? I get it. Arrangement or no arrangement, I would like to think that my time and my energy are as valuable as anyone else's on an hour-for-hour basis. In fact, I've told the story before about working a retail job in high school, and I was making 50 cents above minimum wage, and I was enjoying the job. In fact, I liked the job so much that I encouraged my friend Tom at school. I said, you ought to come apply. We're hiring. And so he came. But before he was hired, there was a 50-cent increase in the federal hourly minimum minimum wage rate. And so when he hired on, suddenly my pay was equal to minimum wage, and they did for him what they did for me. They hired him at 50, per, 50 cents higher than minimum wage, even though I had six months more experience than Tom. And I was envious. I was frustrated about this. In fact, I, when I found out about it, and Tom mentioned it to me in passing, he just assumed we were getting paid the same. When Tom mentioned it, I got envious about this. I protested to my manager, and you can see You can see how the problem that was going on in my heart had multiple facets to it, right? Because part of the deal, on the one hand, I wanted to make more money than Tom was making, right? On the one hand, I wanted, I knew I knew that I had more experience with Tom than Tom did. I I got Tom this job. I was, you know, I was the one who got him connected here in the first place. And I thought my experience, my vast six months of retail experience, deserved a little recognition. But there was a second issue at play here. And the second issue was that my lower pay made me doubt how much my manager valued me. My lower pay rate made me question and maybe even resent 
my manager. Like, they must not value me much around here if they're just throwing extra money at Tom like that. And that's how the early workers, the Sunrise crew at the vineyard felt. Their comparison games that they were working out in their head made them assume, well, the owner here must not respect us much. The owner here must not care for us much. The owner here must not respect us as much as he does those later workers. And so they instantly began to perceive the latecomers, the, the 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, and 5 o'clock crews, like they were rivals, like they're working against each other. They instantly determined, we're not on the same team. We're not the same people. And as rivals, they were competing for the blessing of the vineyard owner. And I'll bet you can see how this parable that Jesus is telling, this story that's just meant to illustrate a point, this parable Jesus is telling points to a real spiritual problem. Because one of the hallmarks of envy is that it makes you question the fairness of your own life. It makes you question the fairness of your own situation. Envy makes you feel bitter when others seem to have it better. But that bitterness is not just aimed at the person that you're envious of. That bitterness gets aimed at God. The bitterness in your heart gets aimed at God because you're going to start to wonder. You're going to start to wonder, why didn't God give me the talents? Why didn't God give me the advantages? Why didn't God give me the head start? Why didn't God give me the resources that seemed like they were just handed to them? And so now, now your envy as it has festered, it's created a problem not just between you and another person, it's created a problem between you and your God, right? This is what envy does. And then, Every time, every time you get reminded, every time you notice again, every time you scroll through the feed, every time someone else gets kudos, every time it feels like salt being rubbed in that wound. One author said, the envious die not once, but as often as the envied win applause. When you're envious of somebody else, every time that, other, that somebody else gets kudos or recognition or new resources, new car, whatever it is, it, it hurts you a little bit inside again. And this is the main difference between vainglory and envy. You see, vainglory wants to be noticed by people for how impressive I am. Vainglory wants other people to say, way to go, boy, good job. Vainglory wants to be noticed by other people, but envy wants God to notice how bad we've got it compared to everybody else. Envy wants God to look down and say, oh, poor Brock. Envy wants God to turn the tables and to suddenly make my life so much different. So much different. And it's rooted in this sense of inadequacy, it's rooted in this sense of low self-worth. It's rooted in this sense of inferiority. And there were so many characters in the scriptures that we read about who dealt with this. 
You think about Cain and the story of Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter 4. He offers this sacrifice to God, and because God doesn't seem to like it as much as the sacrifice that his brother Abel offered, Cain starts to get envious, and he becomes murderous of his brother. You think about the brothers of Joseph. Joseph, who had that coat that his father had given him that was so special. He was the firstborn of his father's chosen wife. And yet all of his brothers, all of his brothers resented him for it. They hated him for what he had. Not just the possession, but the connection. They hated him for what he had. And they were willing to kill him for it. You think about King Saul, who was constantly in this back and forth, just almost psychotic relationship with the later King David, the one who was anointed to be king after him. And Saul was constantly looking for a way to get rid of David, to injure David, to kill David, because he kept hearing people say things like, Saul has defeated his thousands in battle, but David, David has defeated his tens of thousands. And Saul was so envious, so frustrated, so hurt. It made him wonder, does God not care about me? Here he is, he's the king of Israel, and he's wondering, does God not care about me? Which gets us to this story about the laborers in the vineyard wondering, does our equal treatment... Does our pay at the end of the day indicate that the owner of the vineyard doesn't care about us as much as the ones who didn't work as long? And throughout the New Testament, the writers of Scripture are trying to help us understand God better, trying to help us understand that God's attention to somebody else is not an indicator of his inattention toward us. James, who is traditionally recognized as the brother of Jesus. I mean, you've got to think about that for a second. Somebody growing up in the same house as Jesus Christ, the kid brother of Jesus Christ. If you ever felt any pressure to live up to an older sibling's example in your household, James can one-up you on this, all right? Grew up in, the, like, shared bunk beds with Jesus. And he writes this. He says in James chapter 3, verse 14, he says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, and in my translation, the translators have put wisdom in quotation marks. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it's earthly. It's unspiritual. It's demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. And what James is reminding us here about is that the, the feeling of envy is not in itself something that's sinful, but the feeling of envy will drive you to do things that are. The sense of envy in your own heart will drive you to do things that are unkind, that are selfish, that are demonic, that are unspiritual. Having envy in your heart grows into a life 
of deadly sin. And so you have to ask yourself, you have to ask yourself if there's any envy that's been festering in your own heart. And there are some ways, some indicators, some tests that you can give yourself to ask that question. You can ask yourself, like, do you have a nemesis? Do you have anybody in your life that you would just love to see them fail? Do you have anybody in your life, I mean, it could be somebody really close. Could be a sibling, could be your brother-in-law. Somebody in your life that it would really bring a smile to your face if you knew that you made $100 more than them every week, you know? Do you have a nemesis in your life, somebody whose failure brings you some happiness? Do you ever find yourself in a situation where you're unwilling or unable to enjoy somebody else's victory, somebody else's celebratory moment, somebody else gets a promotion, somebody else gets recognition, and you think to yourself, I don't even want to, I, I wish that hadn't happened. You ever find yourself resentful of somebody else's fun, somebody else's pleasure? Do you ever find yourself vilifying another person because they seem to have it too easy? They seem to be too carefree. You ever find that attitude cropping up in your own heart? You ever have FOMO, fear of missing out? Because the question is, what does, that, what does that allow God to be doing in your heart? What's that allow God to be doing inside you? 1 Corinthians 13 may be one of the most famous passages of Scripture. It's that passage that you hear quoted in weddings all the time where it describes what love is like. Love is patient. Love is kind. But did you know that there's one of those in there where it says love does not envy? Love doesn't wish that they could have things better than everybody else. Love looks for ways to celebrate with other people. Love doesn't envy. That's not what love is like. And if God, who is love, is trying to build in you a wellspring of love for other people, if God, who is love, is trying to develop inside of you a different heart, a different spirit, a different attitude, a different mind, a different motivation. If God, who is love, is trying to do that transforming work inside you so that you could become a person who is led with love, then envy has no place. Envy doesn't work for us. Envy doesn't point to the goals that God has for us. And so the question is, what do you do? What do you do when you find yourself feeling envious, when you find yourself stuck in that trap, when that, that problem is growing inside of you and you don't know what to do with it to get rid of it? And I want to tell you the antidote to envy is connected to spiritual contentment. I want to tell you a story about a preacher friend of mine I spent time with this week at a seminar. He was telling me a story about a time when he was in middle school. He was in eighth grade. He was already a year behind the other students in his class. He had taken the sixth grade twice. And in eighth grade, he was taking remedial reading and remedial math. And he had a few learning disabilities. 
And he was trying to navigate all of those challenges. But this was decades ago. He's in his 50s now. And one, he remembers one time, eighth grade, in his general reading class. He said they took a test, and he failed the test, and he was the only one who failed. He said his teacher called him up in front of the class and told the entire class that he was the only one who had failed and told the class that he was probably too stupid to pass. In that moment, my friend said he ran out of the school and he started just roaming around town and he promised himself he wasn't ever going back there again. And finally, hours later, his parents, his family found him walking around town and they brought him home and they tried to console him and talk to him about how they disagreed with everything the teacher said. But his mother, his mother knew that that was going to be a pivotal moment in his life. That that was going to be a landmark moment, watershed moment in his life. And so she stayed up all night. And in the morning, she handed my friend a letter that listed 500 reasons why she was proud to have him as her son. My friend is working on his second doctorate right now. He's brilliant. But he would tell you, he would tell you that that moment and that letter and that insight of his mother to know how much he needed to know how valuable he was, that that moment changed his story. That it has to do with knowing what you're worth to your parent. And the antidote to envy is found in developing a confidence about what God thinks of you. The antidote to envy has nothing to do with what anybody else has or with what anybody else accomplishes, what anybody else can do. It doesn't have anything to do with anybody else's skill. The antidote to envy does not have to, it's not found in somebody else being taken down a notch. The antidote to envy is found in recognizing that your heavenly Father loves you to the fullest extent. That your heavenly Father loves you so much that he's willing to give up his life for you. That he's willing to lower himself for you. And I promise you, if you search through this book, this library of books, you're going to find well over 500 reasons why God is proud to have you as his child. And so I want to invite you. I want to invite you to lean into who God says that you are. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to some church members who are struggling through persecution, struggling, trying to wonder and ask themselves if God even notices their plight. And he tells them this. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, 
may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp. Now, this is a run-on sentence, okay, so don't get lost here. I pray that you would have power to understand, to grasp, how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And I pray that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge, which, means to, which is to say there are going to be moments when you aren't going to be able to even comprehend it. It's bigger than what you can think of. It's bigger than what you can dream of. It's bigger than what you can imagine. It's bigger than what you can understand. And it's definitely bigger than what you can see or perceive. He says, I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you can be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. He says, I don't want you to go through this life empty. I don't want you to go through this life feeling like you've been forgotten. I don't want you to go through this life feeling like you've been cheated. I don't want you to go through this life feeling like somebody else was loved better than you. He says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you, Ephesians, that somehow, somehow, you would be able to grasp even just a fraction of, of the enormity of God's love for you. Because when you know how much God loves you, then what, it, what somebody else has or does or says, it doesn't phase you, right? When you know how much God loves you, whatever your eighth grade teacher said, that's, that, that's not on the radar anymore, but we're talking about envy. When you know how much God loves you, and it doesn't bother you to know that God loves somebody else too, that God loves all the children, that God cares for all of us. It doesn't hurt your feelings to know that because you are so content, so confident, so restful in the arms and the love of your Father.